Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Carrie Crocker has always wished that more art was interactive, or at the very least, immersive or experiential. Having explored video, audio, and basic circuitry in college, she applied her media knowledge to the software industry during the birth of interactive media. After taking a sideways turn to help other people get organized for five years, she decided to return to an art practice in 2008 by taking a painting class, something she'd never tried in college. By 2010, she found a path toward mixing traditional media like painting with technology and found it most comfortable to start showing her work as her alter ego, Parasol B. Carrie has a BFA in experimental video and audio from the Atlantic College of Art and also works as the Director of Operations at the Carrick in Durham. In this episode, Carrie discusses her own interactive audio-visual artwork and her position as Director of Operations at the Carrick Gallery. This episode was recorded in October 2018, right before the Muse Masquerade, which is the largest fundraising event of the year for the Carrick. Carrie shares her wisdom about how to approach such an event with a large scope. We talk about work-life balance, where she finds her inspiration, and more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Tamara. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is a treat. In our pre-interview phone conversation, you said that in 2008, you decided to do art again. Mm -hmm. What had you been doing before that? Before that, well, I went to art school a very long time ago, and then after, and my my focus was on video and audio. And so after college, I got a job doing software development that included video and audio. It was very cutting edge at the time. Uh, on it was uh, digital video and audio on CD-ROMs that were interactive, and <laughs> um, so that tells you how long ago that was. So I did video and audio in that context, and then eventually software project management, and sort of never gave art a thought during that time. And then when my husband and I moved up here in 2000, sort of for his business purposes, for him to be doing his software. I decided I didn't really want to do that anymore. And because it was it was extremely we were we were self-employed most of that time and it was extremely long hours, extremely extremely tolling. And so I thought I want to do something different. So something I ended up doing was opening a business that helps people get organized, like organize their homes or offices. And I did that for 5 years until I realized that it was not a good fit for me. Mm. Um, because it was very emotionally tolling, that kind of work, which I didn't really expect. And so I stopped doing that and said, I'm going to take a painting class because I've never done that before. Then I started experimenting with paint. I knew I was interested in technology, like, you know, with the history of the video and the audio and electronic stuff in college. I knew I was still interested in that. So how could I bring a traditional medium like paint and electronics or me media together into something that's like a new combination or something interesting, or at least interesting to me. I'm very, very, very nerdy. 
how would you describe the art that you make now? What I make now, what I've made most recently is really focusing on like really basic, like 1960s era electronics, the kind of thing that you would walk into Radio Shack to buy components if there still existed brick and mortar Radio Shacks everywhere. Instead, you order online at RadioShack.com, which I found is out is still a thing. Um, I didn't know that uh, they even existed uh, online. Yeah, it does. The, it's it's totally not the same experience as walking in and being able to just like look through all of the little microphone options and all the little capacitors and the resistors and the circuit boards and all this stuff. It's not the same creative process to build those things as it is looking at those components online, even though you have so many more options online. It was like, it was a simpler time. (laughs) (laughs) In a lot of ways, it made things easier. I can't Mm. believe how much I did and learned back then when there was no internet. Mm. Um, So I, I... I build very basic circuits that do mostly audio-related things. They either take audio, uh, like like use microphones, take it, amplify it, and do something to the sound, modify the sound in some way, filtering or something, or make sound. And the way that those are activated is by being part of sculptures that are interactive, so that you know, to experience it, you have to touch it and interact because mm-hmm. that's just very important to me. <laughs> I've always, I've always thought that art should be interactive and it was frustrating that it, not everything is. I brought my daughter to see one of your exhibits at the Carrick. And yes, I remember that. Yes. And she was thrilled out of her mind. Oh, really? That that's she great. Could, well, she could touch the work and she's old enough now where she doesn't have to touch everything that she sees mm-hmm. like a toddler would. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she had permission to interact with the art was thrilling for her. Mm-hmm. And it was a load off of my mind as well because I didn't have <laughs> yes. to constantly monitor. It's like, it's okay. Right. You can actually interact with this. What do you think the interactive feature does for the people who are experiencing your art. It's really interesting because the the I, I saw a noted difference between the way children reacted and the way adults reacted. This is probably not going to sound very surprising, but kids, once they were made aware that they could do this, would just jump right in there and do it. And sometimes to like you know, I tried to build things to be really durable, but sometimes to a degree where like they would break things and that's okay. I was fixing things every day. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. Uh, one parent was like mortified that his kid like broke one of my sculptures and I was like, no, seriously, this is going to take me like five minutes to fix. It's like no big deal. But adults for the most part have had a huge amount of trouble. Even when you tell them you can touch it, they would still hesitate and So then you would sort of like demonstrate for them so that they could see what the cause and effect was going to be before they would feel comfortable enough to touch it or interact with it. I guess it's because we're taught that when you go into a gallery or a museum, you're supposed to look, you're not supposed to take photos with your phone, you're not supposed to make any noise. And suddenly I'm like, oh no, you have to make noise. (laughs) You should use your phone. 
and you need to touch the thing or nothing's going to happen. Like you could look at it and take it at face value, but like, believe me, it's way more interesting if you kick it or like wobble it with your hand or so adults, much more hesitant kids kind of like once they figured it out, they kind of got in there, which was very interesting. And I don't have kids, so I don't know how to, I don't know how to relate to them as well as people who have kids, obviously. So it's, it was interesting to sort of interact with kids in that scenario because I just, I don't interact with kids that much Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. And how does the painting come in? Because you said painting plus technology. Yeah, so that was kind of where I started. I had this idea, this was the, the, you know, the beginning of smartphones. Like, I guess the first iPhone came out in 2007. It was 2008 that I just started decided to start painting. It was like 2008, 2009 when there started being apps for the iPhone. I, you know, I noticed this QR code thing that was happening. Like people were trying to make it a thing with marketing, using it for, you know, product information and stuff like that, which still really hasn't really caught on very well. But it was a really interesting thing because I can code whatever information I wanted to into a barcode that I could then scan. And once I scan it, I can tell the phone, you know, once you scan this, make this thing happen, Um, make noise, take you to a video, give you a procedure or instructions to do something. So suddenly this thing that like at the time, not everybody had became, became a tool that could be used to interact with art. Like, you can look at it or you can go deeper, scan it, retrieve more information, instructions, media, audio, and do more with it. So I thought that was really interesting because, again, I'm a, I'm a nerd and I hadn't seen anyone do that before. Um, I have seen some people do that since, but for the longest time, I didn't see anyone trying to do fine art with QR codes in it. It just seemed so obvious to me, mm-hmm. but, um, I, you know, I was always, I was always looking online for other people that were doing something similar and couldn't find it. So that, that was interesting to me. And then part of that is that encoded data can be visual and the QR code is a visualization of encoded data. And so what else can I do with visualizations of encoded data? I can do something that doesn't require a smartphone, like uh, what I did next, breaking music down into components that I could then develop a like a visual vocabulary for to express the, the musical information visually as a painting. And I could tell, and I could have multiple methods. I have I have like four methods that I've used of different sets of vocabularies to so that I can tell you this is what these symbols mean and this is what this color means and this is what these size of shapes mean so that if you look at the painting you can actually like imagine oh it's like a lower note and then a higher note and then a higher note but then it comes back down to a lower note so you can get an idea of what this piece of music sounds like just by looking at the painting it's like going directly from the through your eyeballs into your brain bypassing your ears completely. You are translating what people hear into visual art, but they hear it at the same time. Is that right? They uh, they may. Like okay. in, 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 this, in this most recent exhibit at the Carrick in June, the music visualizations that I did as paintings, I also gave 
the visitors a way to, they can either just look and figure it out and read with the, you know, how to sort of interpret. Or there were ways that they could actually play the paintings using one of the like numeric methods. There was using this circuit board that's called a Makey Makey that you can like hook up to any app on your computer that can be controlled by a keyboard, which like the keyboard, like the QWERTY keyboard. I found a tool that was like a piano that you could control with QWERTY keyboard. This circuit board lets you control the keyboard to control the keyboard to make music. But the way the user interacted with it was that there was painted spots on the wall of conductive paint so that um, basically when they touched them, it would make the noise. So mm-hmm. their body was becoming part of the circuit to make the noise. This is like a very complicated way of saying the user could, or the, the viewer or the participant could touch the wall given instructions from like what they're seeing on the painting to play what they're seeing on the painting uh, by touching the different areas on the wall. I also gave them a way of playing it back in a more simple way where one of my visualizations is based on the Fisher Price record player. Yes, I remember those well. Yeah, like from the 70s. I don't and I don't know if they I don't think they still make those but like from the 70s. It's like a disc with like little nubs on it and it turns and uh, the like quote unquote needle is actually like technically a music box. So like little metal teeth that get strung or strummed by the little nubs on the record to make music. And it sounds like a music box. I, I 3D printed my own records of the songs that were represented in the paintings so that you could play the music on the little record player and look at the painting Hmm. and maybe be able to tell, maybe be able to translate. What am I hearing? What am I seeing? How does that relate? So two ways to play the paintings Hmm. in that scenario. And what kind of responses did you get from people who viewed your work or heard your work at the same time? People seemed pretty um, happy about it. Uh, I actually put out a comment box because a friend of mine recommended doing that. One person said something about how I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not just a visual person. I am a person that likes to touch things and I learn through touching things and I learn through kinetic movement. And so this is an exhibit for me because I never see this, but this is what I, this is what I need to stimulate me, not just using my eyeballs. Mm-hmm. So that was from an adult. And then, of course, like seeing the kids interact tells you what you need to know. Overall, like very good feedback. And and also there was like a private party that was happening that happened to be during my exhibit. It was for Laura Ritchie when she was leaving the Carrick as her director position. And um, I heard I was in the gallery most of the night because I wanted to, you know, be there to, so I could ask or so I could answer questions from people. But I heard that there was conversation happening outside at the party that people liked it. So I heard sort of, you know, second or third hand from people that there were positive things being said. So that's that's nice to hear. Of course, I'm sure if anyone was saying bad things, they would just never let it get back to me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the wisest course of action. Fine. It's not for everybody. (laughs) I think I read that you exhibit your work as your alter ego Parasol B? That is correct. Who is that? That is a person that I 
I mean, I don't know if they're a full person, but uh, a character, I guess, that when I started doing art again, like 10 years ago, I just felt more comfortable letting the art happen and be attributed to someone else rather than being attributed directly to me. I think that probably had something to do with, you know, fear of acceptance and approval and whatever. But also I thought, you know, like people who are graffiti artists and a lot of other kind of art forms, I mean, like DJs and musicians, they, they all have pseudonyms. So why, why shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, So we did. And how is that person or persona different from you? Uh, I think that they are probably not that different. They, I, I think they're probably not that different. I, I did sort of portray that differently in my show last summer because I had a, a narrative around the show uh, that there was a story that explained why all of the art was there being shown and to do that story, I made Parasol be a, an anonymous character that was never present at the gallery. And when I was at the gallery, I was actually there as Carrie Crocker, a curator of work by two artists called Parasol B, one from the past and one from the present. It was a little confusing, but it made sense to me. I sort of use that character as a way to anonymize myself sometimes. I use it as a way to have a character in a story. And, um, you know, for a while, nobody knew who Parasol B was, like for the first few years, probably. But I just got lax about it over time. I guess as I got comfortable with it, I got I got lax about it and, you know, let it slide that people knew that I was Parasol B. And then, and then for this past show, I decided I'm going to completely make that character anonymous again. I'm going to deny that I was ever that person. <laughs> if anyone asks so I can stick to the story, that person is, uh, that person is a contemporary artist that I know, uh, but they're not, they're not here, but I am showing their work hmm. as part of this exhibit. Would you talk a little bit about your process and how you come up with ideas or make these connections Well, first of all, I get inspired just by, you know, media things happening in the world. I watch kind of a lot of YouTube. There's some, you know, geeky YouTube channels I watch that talk about numbers and science and things like that. And those are are inspiring. And when I was doing preparation and research for my show, I basically watched YouTube videos every day at lunch to retrain me or reteach me how to build electronics, how to solder properly, (laughs) because I have soldered poorly in the past and burned myself, and how to do things like that. So I mean, the inspiration comes from everywhere. My husband is a total geek, too. And so he's always telling me about interesting things that are happening. So you know, like anybody, I'm taking cues from all around me in the world. But like something that I've figured out this year was that it's sort of like a way to tap into a creative process, which was sort of by accident, was that when I do hot yoga, and then they have shavasana at the end, which is the part where you take a nap for 10 minutes, basically, (laughs) I can sort of lucid dream. Like, I've been able to lucid dream before, but it's a little bit different. This is, 
I don't think I'm, I think you're supposed to have rapid eye movement with lucid dreaming, but I don't think I am doing that with this. I, I know I'm there, but I am also elsewhere and I'm watching visuals in my head that are happening and I'm following them more than I'm controlling them. But I am, they're kind of, the visuals are kind of controlled by the music that's happening in the room somewhat. And that's me turning, you know, audio into image again or mm. image into audio. I, I could get into this state during Shavasana where I, it was like lucid dreaming. And then like things would just come to me very clearly, very suddenly, not things I was trying to solve, not problems I was trying to solve, not issues I was trying to deal with, but just, you know, I would maybe have a project in mind that I was working on, but suddenly it's like, bling, I'd have this this knowledge of, oh, this is how to solve that problem so that this thing works better or so that this electronic, so that this electronics piece works or whatever. And it's, it was this really strange way to get this clarity of information. And so now I try to do it every time, (laughs) every time I go to yoga, I try to do it. I can't always do it. Um, But I, I've got to be in, I think the harder the classes, the more likely my brain is just like at the end and I can let it happen. Depends on how busy I am that day and whether my brain just gets flooded with work stuff suddenly instead, which is, that means that I'm failing at Shavasana, but sometimes I win at Shavasana and I get ideas. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody else experiences that. I will say that the ideas that I have been the most excited about my most out-of-the-box ideas have come about in similar circumstances. Not related to yoga because mm-hmm. I'm not taking any yoga classes these days. But when I'm laying on my bed, just not quite napping, but not quite awake. Mm-hmm. And just laying there, laying there, laying there. And then all of a sudden, a wonderful idea comes to me that I never could have cranked out Walking, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it it's, sounds very similar. Yes, and so I'm glad that we're talking about this right now because it's an encouragement to go back to that place. I think that I've shied away from doing that because at this point in my life, I'm so focused on what I consider to be productive work mm-hmm. that I'm like, I don't have time to lay in my bed for 15 minutes right. and let my I, mind wander. That's, that's what I was thinking. I was like, when yeah. do you do that? I don't yeah. know how that works. <laughs> yeah, that's but it absolutely that. happens. And I think it, it has something to do with relaxing into some other network, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're that we're tapped into mm-hmm. that we don't have access to when we're being super productive and walking around the, the world with our eyes open and our, um, our just our day-to-day minutia mm-hmm. that we're trying to wade through. So I think that maybe it looks different for other people mm-hmm. to get in that sort of relaxed state. I mean, I know that some people it happens in the shower, some people it happens on a run, some you know, there are different ways to access that creative I'm going to call it a creative network. But for me, it's definitely this lucid dreaming almost napping kind of thing mm-hmm. and I uh, even inspired me to to do that again. Oh wow. Yes. Well, I'm I'm you know, I've been holding on to this thought for like the whole year, really. And I've meant to put that sort of idea out to other artists to say, like, am I crazy? Or what do you experience? But now I have, I guess, uh, once this airs, and maybe some people will give us some feedback about their experience with that, because I would be interested to know, like, how different artists maybe experience something similar to that, because I guess it's not an isolated phenomenon. But 
I'd be interested to know more about what people think about that. Yeah, I feel like it's one tool, right? It's mm-hmm. one of many tools mm-hmm. in the creative process because sometimes you, at least from a writing perspective, sometimes you have to sit down and just sweat it out. You just have to sit in front of the computer and wait for the words to come or keep trying things and then deleting it. And I mean, sometimes that is part of the work. You can't just like lucid dream your way into writing, uh, <laughs> you know, a press release or oh, yeah. a blog post or whatever. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> but there are other tools and this is, this is absolutely a tool to try. I think especially when, well, at least for me, especially when I'm looking for something that is from a more inspirational place that is more, I'll say it again, out of the box way mm-hmm. to approach a, a solution, you know, to a problem. It especially works for me when I'm thinking about new work that I want to make. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, what's a new play that I want to write or, you know, a new project I want to take on, or I know I'm interested in these five elements, but how are they connected? Mm-hmm. Those sort of things. I think that that state of of relaxation opens me up to that creative soup, you mm-hmm. know, um, gelling together. So, so we have to give ourselves the time to do that sort of relaxation so that that can happen. Absolutely. But it's never going to happen for writing a press release. Never going to happen. <laughs> so what project are you currently working on? I am currently working on the Muse Masquerade for the Carrick, but that's literally this week and next week. And by the time anyone hears this, that will be long gone. But for my own artistic practice, I'm trying to do sort of a regular set of experiments uh, and exercises related to electronic music and circuitry that is based on this book by Nicholas Collins. I actually brought it with me so that I could read the entire title because it's kind of long. It's called Handmade Electronic Music, The Art of Hardware Hacking by Nicholas Collins. And he provides, it's this big book. It's like a a manual almost that has like 30 something experiments slash exercises in it that teach you by trying things, by experimenting, teaches you all about using electronics for making music. It's something I wish I had known existed before I started trying to put together my show earlier this year because it would have been a great way for me to relearn everything I needed to relearn about making electronics and also principles of electronics. Like, I mean, it's still still so difficult to wrap my head around things like Ohm's Law and Things related to, you know, how electricity flows and at what rate and how bit how uh, and through how big of a pipe, basically. It's it's very, very complicated. And I am not an electrical engineer, but this is a book for people, more like for creatives that want to be making music, or in my case, it's really like noise with electronics. And so the idea is every other week maybe to do an exercise and then document it on Instagram with video and audio because it kind of is pointless to do that with photographs if it's making noise or showing emotion. So I've done one of them so far, but then I I had to get into Muse Masquerade. But after Muse Masquerade, I'm going to try to be doing it regularly so that, you know, by the time you hear this, there'll be a few more there that you can look at the videos that are the examples. The one I, I, I've done so far has to do with picking up electromagnetic frequencies in unconventional ways, like 
using a coil pickup, which is like the kind of microphone that's an old timey phone to pick up electromagnetic noise, like from fluorescent lights or from the digital display on your oven. Mm. All of those things make noise and that, that you can pick up and you can hear it and you can record it. And, you know, the big power bricks for the PlayStation make this crazy thumping noise that practically sounds like EDM and, you know, that a DJ would use at a dance party. Uh, All of these things around you are, you know, putting off electromagnetic frequencies that can actually be really easily picked up and listened to. And they all make their own kind of noise. And Mm. it's really weird. Mm. (laughs) So... Uh, they all you can do the same thing also with an AM radio. You can tune it to a non-station and then like hold the antenna of the radio up to the same kind of things and get a different kind of noise. Like it picks it up and it, you know whenever they talk about like radio interference, well, it's like you're trying to do that rather than trying to avoid it. Hmm. So um, it's really strange things like that. And the next the next one I know has something to do with. Um, you know, something that people maybe not thought about before is that how microphones and headphones are the same thing, really, depending on, you know, exactly what type or whatever, but the principles are the same. Like you could, you could plug some headphones into a mic jack and like speak into them and you'd get a signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it works both ways. And it's like, whoa, that's kind of freaky. So it looks like there's some experiments coming related to that, which is just fun. It's fun geeky fun and um at least one other artist is interested in maybe doing this with me so, so having some accountability for actually making sure i do these things on the schedule that i say i'm going to do them will be could be useful because this this sort of measured project where it's like you know spending a day doing a thing every other week is part of my future plan to try to have more balance in my life because I'm terrible at that. So this is this is going to be a fun project that will maybe help me live my life in a more balanced way. All right. So we're going to talk about that in yes. just a second. Mm-hmm. But, okay, I have a couple of different questions yeah, yeah. related to this. How do you translate these experiments on handmade electronic music into something that you could put in a gallery? Or are, is that your objective? It it is kind of like it's it, it, this is all about learning fundamentals that I can then use in some like use it in a new way. So off and on, I spend a lot of time at the scrap exchange, like when I was preparing for last year or this past year's show. I spent a lot of time at scrap exchange looking for things like just like objects that resonate. If you like, you know, ding them with your knuckles or whatever, looking for you know, containers that would hold circuitry that I could like make into enclosures for circuits, looking for, you know, weird, any kind of weird pieces of metal or something that might make noise or any sort of objects that make noise, looking for kids' electronic toys that make noise that you can take apart and hack them to make them do something new. So a lot of ideas come from just like browsing at the scrap exchange um, looking at what materials are there and going, what could I do with that? What could I do with that? What could I do with that thing? And then a picture starts to form where things come together. And I mostly take, you know, this knowledge and then like looking at materials and I let it just bake 
for a while. I've always used the phrase, and I think I learned this from my husband, like, put it on the back burner. Like, I put it on the back burner in my brain just to let it, you know, let it cook. And eventually, like, those puzzle pieces will be floating around and they'll come together and I'll just, like, have an aha. You know, maybe it's not while lucid dreaming, maybe it's while I'm awake. But but this is one way that you can build up your skill, basically. Exactly. Build up skill and ideas for you know, the foundation of a new project. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you go, you take your easel and you go out and you paint a nature scene or, you know, I don't know, you paint art models. And where is the art in this for you? Like, why is, why do you consider this art as opposed to um, like audio engineering or something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think I do know what you mean. I think because I'm, I'm trying to bring things together in ways that people have not experienced it before. You know, I had a, a, I used a stack of old records and I put a noise making circuit inside of it. And when the, when you would like bend or like wobble the records um, as they touched each other, it would change the quality of the noise. And so it was like playing an instrument. I mean, these are almost like, a lot of this stuff is almost like building instruments, really, which I mean, and that that idea kind of came from uh, Moogfest in 2017. In Moogfest 2017, I went to a bunch of workshops. And I believe that was the year that they were that there was a lot of emphasis on instrument making. And so I went to a bunch of those workshops and that kind of got me back into the electronics thing. So, you know, you can make a brand new kind of musical instrument that is not something somebody has experienced before. And it's not what they expect it's going to be at all. And it doesn't look like a musical instrument at all. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the art is the bringing together these things in new ways that are, you know, unrecognizable or new to discover by people. Let's talk about Carrick. Okay. So for, for folks who don't know, the Carrick is an artist-centered, volunteer-run, zero-commission art space in downtown Durham, North Carolina, that hosts short, rapidly rotating exhibitions, performances, workshops, and community gatherings. Carrie, you are the Director of Operations and Fundraising Event Coordinator for the Carrick. How did you get connected? Well... <laughs> Uh, I actually get that question a lot from people just who are generally curious. I, I did some of what people may remember, the Durham Storefront Projects in like 2011, 2012. That was a, a program that was going on where they were trying to put art in uh, underutilized window spaces in downtown Durham because things weren't quite so revitalized. Pre-revitalization. <laughs> yeah. Seven years ago, there was like, you know, a lot of empty window space down there. So they were putting art in it. And I remember hearing somebody, and this had to be literally like three months after the Carrick opened, except now now that I know the timeline of the Carrick, it had to be like three months after the opening. It's like, oh, so-and-so is having a show at the Carrick Modern. And I was like, ooh, that sounds fancy. That sounds like something I want to know about. The Carrick Modern, what the heck? It's a modern art gallery in Durham. And so... Not a whole lot later, I found out that a, a good friend of mine was volunteering there on a regular basis. She's an artist. Her name is Libby Lynn. 
And so I just sort of started hanging out with her during her shifts. At the time, I think I was, you know, sort of in between projects and not knowing what to do with myself. And so I had some time that I could do that, which was good. I need to always try to find time to spend time with friends, but started hanging out with her and then learned what the Carrick was and, you know, by being there and it's like, oh, it's not what I thought it was. It's not this fancy thing. It's like more, it's more of like this DIY thing. This approach with the zero commission thing is totally unusual, but so cool, you know, having it be this place where artists can do whatever they want basically. And then there was uh, the call for artists was coming up soon. And um, this would have been like 2013. Yeah. 2013 ish. I, because I had been focusing on the QR codes and smartphone related stuff, I was really uh, interested to know what other artists were doing relating to smartphone culture, like how smartphones are affecting humankind or the human animal and the way we behave, like what is it doing to us? And this was in 2013. So it's hard to think like, how long has the smartphone craziness been going on? And it's been a while. So I was like, there should be a a show. We should Libby and another friend, Ty and I uh, co-curated or came up with the concept of co-curating a show that was, um, there would be a juried group show of people doing work related to the culture of smartphones, not art made by smartphones, you know, not art made, you know, not, you know, photography done with smartphones, not art made with, but about the culture and how it affects us. So we had a pretty good turnout of applicants put on a pretty interesting show got well got got juried in by the Mm -hmm. Carrick. That's the important part got juried in and put on this show in 2014. After that, and so after experiencing being a participant artist or curator at the Carrick, you know, you get a little bit more entrenched. It's like, like they gave you an opportunity, you give a little something back. And so I started doing some volunteering. And then the next, I guess it was the next year that Laura approached me about coming up with a new kind of fundraiser. And we had the first conversation about what should that be? Mm. And I was very flattered that she asked me to be involved at such a high level (laughs) and came up with the Muse Masquerade just because I like Halloween. And she said, yes, that sounds great. Let's do it. So that turned into that. It's a huge party at 21C where everyone's in masks and everyone's inhibitions are down and people are drinking and having fun, but raising money for the Carrick at the same time. So the Muse Masquerade is in its fifth year? This is the fourth year. The fourth year. 2018 is the fourth one. Okay. It's notable because it's a whole lot of work, but also because it is the largest vehicle to fund the entire year for the Carrick. Is that right? It is. That is the intent we have, you know, it's it's hard to meet our lofty goals. It is definitely the biggest fundraiser. We wish it could raise more money than it does, and we're working on trying to improve that. But it is the biggest fun. It is the biggest single fundraising thing we do mm-hmm. during the year, and it's held every year near Halloween. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people need to put that on their calendars for next year because it is a 
great and creative, very creative party. It's a very creative party. <laughs> There's a lot of crazy stuff happening there. There's like something for everyone, assuming you want to be in a crowd of um, strangers wearing masks and costumes. So I know that you, at least in the past, have been in charge of this masquerade. Mm-hmm. What else do you do as director of operations and how is your relationship to the Muse Masquerade changing? What I do for operations or as director of operations. So first of all, let me state that this is a part-time job. It's 10 hours a week. The whole like having director in my title is, you know, sounds kind of fancy. Um, but I am the only person doing it. So I guess I get to be the director. <laughs> I manage our website or most I mostly manage our social media. The director gets in there too uh, on social media, help write the e-newsletter with the director. Um, I put, I I help put new systems in place. I get, um, I've set up a lot of software tools for us for productivity. I think the core of what I do is support work for the director to keep the gallery running um, so that she can be like, the one making the relationships and working directly with the artists who are exhibiting. I'm keeping all the the website and the newsletters going and making sure we, you know, have our files organized on drive and have the right software tools we need to be efficient um, and more and more efficient over time because it's so much work for two people to do because Saba Taj, the new director, she's also part-time. She's 25 hours a week. And so that's not that many hours to run a gallery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after this this Muse Masquerade is done going forward, it's going to be a lot of getting more systems in place that get us more, more and more and more efficient. So are you the only two paid employees? Yes. Okay. So it's basically 30 hours a week. 35 paid. hours paid, yeah. 35 hours a week and paid. And volunteers. Mm. That's a lot to do with it's, a very small amount of dollars. It is a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your responsibility up to this point has been entirely been this masquerade, but I think that this year you're bringing volunteers in. Yeah, this year, because it is an insanely huge project. It's, I mean, the first year it wasn't quite so big. It was like, you know, based in the ballroom at 21C. But then the next year we expanded to programming on three floors for the whole night and, um, you know, really want guests to feel like they're immersed in something. There's things happening around them all the time that every space that they're in, it's huge. It, it's the amount of work is frankly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The number of people that have to be managed throughout the process is around 100 because um, between volunteers and talent, we typically have about 100 people running the event and participating in the event. And it's like 500 guests. So it's like a five to one ratio, which Mm -hmm. is crazy. It's a ton of work. And I... I will, I I have tended to dive into it. I I feel like I took this on. I'm responsible for it. Now I'm going to, um, you know, while neglecting everyone else in my life, I'm going to go into a cave and be on my computer 24 hours a day and make myself sick and not get enough sleep because I wake up at five or six in the morning with like what I got to do, what I got to do, what I got to do. Even though I use like project management tools and I'm really organized and I track all my stuff very carefully, it's so much work. And so 
I swore to my husband that I was not doing that again this year and that we were going to recruit a team of volunteers who are, we actually like, we, we offered a little bit of a stipend to, because it's, it's a tremendous amount of work and we can't afford to pay people to do the actual work it takes, but you know, a little incentive. And we, we were able to pull, to uh, pull together a team of five people, which we call coordinators, There's talent, volunteers, the main sort of project management person, um, a sponsorship person and a marketing person, plus a graphic designer. So he's sort of sixth. Um, he attends all our meetings, which is great because he's just like another creative mind on the project. So have this team of coordinators. They've been working on this since May. I'm still backseat driving because it's a lot of information to convey to other people. I'm the person that has all the knowledge in my head and so much of it written down. I mean, I made this tremendous roadmap that they could follow if they wanted to. So they've been doing the brunt of the work. I'm still working way too many hours on it. Um, It could be just because I'm being too picky in, in making sure that, you know, things come out the way that I feel like the Carrick wants them to come out. But those guys are working insanely hard on top of their full-time jobs. And I think they're proud of the work, um, which is great. So that's a huge, huge improvement over last year. Like I'm not at this point, like the event is next weekend. I'm not waking up at five or six in the morning. I'm waking up at a normal time. So that's a good sign (laughs) Mm because it's all about my subconscious brain telling me like what to do, like by waking me up like at five in the morning to start working or something. So next year, like, so I feel like I've made a huge step. My husband definitely feels like I'm way too involved and I understand and and I hear his feelings and I understand them. Uh, You know, I feel like my cats are not getting the, the promised (laughs) playtime they're supposed to get every day, but it's going pretty well and the event is next week. And so, you know, fingers crossed, we're going to, you know, have a great event and make a lot of money. But next year I just have to be a person that I can answer questions, but that's literally all I'm doing and have a crew take it on. And, and, and Saba and I both agree that because of our limited hours, like neither she nor I has the resources to do fundraising for the Carrick. You can only do this. You can only, we can only run the gallery. Right. And so, you know, which comes with so many things like building relationships and all, you know, it's not just day to day, whatever. So, you know, we became a 501c3 earlier this year. We're in the process of trying to figure out good people to have on our board of directors, you know, and, you know, one of the needs we have there that we need to fill is like someone that will do fundraising or event planning, um, or lead that. So did a big step this year, getting a team this coming year, we're going to need to have, I think, um, a member of the board of directors plus a team to implement next year because, she and I just can't do it. Right, right, right. <laughs> and she's really good about making sure that she has like two days a week where that are studio days for her. And I'm like, wow, how do you do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. But also because of the transition of directors this year from Laura Ritchie leaving and Sabotage coming in, I I was also filling in a lot of holes and picking up a lot of slack there because suddenly I was the person with all of the knowledge and I needed to make sure 
Saba was staying afloat um, with what she needed to be doing. So a lot, a lot of time investment this year, but got to be super strict next year about really sticking to my 10 hours a week. Plus, you know, a little volunteer on top of that, fine, but not 40 hours a week or whatever. Right, right. Well, it takes a lot of time to make that transition when you are the primary person with the knowledge and the experience. I mean, it just takes time to kind of download that for people. It does. It mm-hmm. totally does. I mean, fortunately, like Saba is totally quick on the draw. <laughs> like I only have to tell her something once and she's got it and runs with it. So that's that's really, really good. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about some things that you have learned that might be useful to pass on to other people. And the first area is the event planning slash fundraising piece. So if you have, if there's a nonprofit in the Triangle area and they decide that they want to do a massive fundraising event, in addition to bringing on a team, which I think mm-hmm. is something that you've just talked about, in addition to that, are there other things that people should keep in mind when they're thinking about a big the, blowout? The things we've learned, which have you know caused us to try, and when I say we, I'm thinking back in time to me and Laura, that we are trying to improve over time is that you have to start really early. Like if, you know, if I, if we could get that team recruited for 2019, like next month and get them going, that would be ideal because delegating is very important, but delegating is very difficult without having tons of time. The more time you can spend planning and thinking ahead, the more likely you can actually delegate to somebody because you got to get, you know, far along far along enough in a process to know what needs to be done, then like identify a volunteer that has the skills and is available to do it and then get them going and then manage them and make sure they deliver to get back what you need to do your next thing. And so if you don't want to do all the work yourself, you have to, you know, put you have to start very, very, very early so that you have time to delegate. And I'm still guilty of not doing that well enough because things do come up that it's like, oh, gosh, we should have made sure that was done a month ago because now, you know, we can't ask somebody to just like hop right in and do 20 hours worth of work uh, and turn it around in 20 hours. Right, so, right. Um, so, oh, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. And, you know, managing volunteers, just like with employees, it's like, and, and with interns and things like that, it takes more of your time than if you, so it can take more of your time initially than if you do it yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm a victim or I'm a, not a victim. I am uh, a person who will be like, well, it'll just be faster if I get it done myself. And like, you have to resist that urge and plan early. You're talking about starting the week after the event planning for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. So like a year. Yeah. Uh I think if, if you, you, this kind of thing, and, and I'll be interested to, after when I, um, after I have a follow up with the coordinators after the event and we've done some after event analysis and we've done our guest surveys and, and things like that, I had taken how much time I had tracked in previous years to put on this event And I divided the, I padded it some, and then I divided that number by five, five coordinators. And that was 
my estimate for how much time per week they would have to spend. In hindsight, I know that that should have been doubled. So my ask should have been not two hours a week during this during this phase, but five hours a week during this phase. Mm-hmm. Not five hours a week during this phase, but 10 hours a week during this phase. Um, I think they'll probably agree with that assessment or something in that ballpark. Yeah, they'll be able to give me feedback about what the reality was of their involvement and that, you know, should it spread out over, over a year. But not only should it spread out, spread out over a year, but can people make a year commitment to a project like that mm-hmm. when they're working a full-time job or have a family and or both? That's asking so much of people and, and you know, other options are to pay people like more than just like an honorarium and then cuts into your bottom line. So a lot of tricky stuff with volunteers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other question I have for you is from an administrative perspective. So I know that you have exhibited your work in the Carrick Gallery mm-hmm. as an artist, but you also have this interesting window from the other side mm-hmm. as someone who works there. So what have you learned that would be helpful for artists to know because of your experience in operations? Oh, gosh. Um really putting a focus on marketing their shows as early as possible, because the sooner we can get details, not just, Oh, I'm going to have a recep- an opening reception on such and such date, but it's going to be from six to 9 PM. I'm going to have music being able to make decisions on events. They're going to be having during the, the exhibit, uh, so that we can be promoting those things. We put them on our website and we put them on Facebook as events and um, get a lot of traction both ways. But, you know, the sooner we can do it, the better. And it's really hard. I am, I was completely guilty of like not pulling my things for my show together until the last minute mm-hmm. or, or what felt to me like the last minute. So focusing on marketing earlier, having like more of a marketing plan so that you can get the word out to people because where we're located now, I mean, this is specific to the Carrick, not just art exhibits, but where we're located now, it's less foot traffic, but we get most of our traffic from events. And so programming events during the exhibit is pretty important if you want people to see the work. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that people, that artists resist getting that information together early? Is it because they just aren't thinking about it, aren't prioritizing it, or is there some sort of mindset issue that is popping up? I I can only guess because I can never know what anyone else is thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can only guess that they are in exactly the same place I was in six months ago where I was spending every waking moment trying to finish the work. And so the marketing is like, I'll get it together. I'll get it together. But you're spending every moment trying to finish the work. It's a big space to fill. And, you know, it's not like you have to pack, pack our gallery full or anything like that, but it just, it just gets put off, I think, because, you know, the work comes first. Mm -hmm. It's a constant challenge. I feel like for artists, the, this dual challenge of making it and promoting it. Yes. And, and not everybody has those skills either, which nothing wrong with that. Not everybody is on social media. We've got plenty of artists that have shown that don't even have personas on social media or only on one and not the others. Yeah, realizing how important 
social media especially is if they want people to see their work. So I'd like to conclude with some conversations around this life art work balance. Um, And based on what you've said, I know that you're putting an enormous amount of time into your work administratively at the Carrick. And I think that you talked about the Muse Masquerade being a a big creative outlet for you this past couple of years. But you have this other work that you're trying to do as an artist as well. And I hear you saying that you're striving to bring more of that into your life in a consistent way. Yeah, I, um, anyone who knows me well knows that I am terrible at sort of life work art balance or just simplified life work balance. When I do a project, I'm really, really ambitious and I'm a perfectionist. And so I dive in and then like my husband feels like he doesn't see me for three months. This, I mean, it happened during me preparing for my show earlier this year. It happens each year for Muse Masquerade there will be a multi-month period where I'm just heads down in that and don't even see anything else going on around me. And it's really unhealthy. (laughs) It's an unhealthy way to do it, but it's a struggle. I don't know how else to do it. And that's always, it's kind of always been the case is the way I work. I mean, I'm deadline oriented. I don't do things unless I have a deadline. Uh, I don't do things just because I only do them because, you know, oh, I got to clean up this room because somebody's coming to visit or mm-hmm. I've got to make some art because I've got a show coming or there's a deadline for the Muse, for the Muse Masquerade. So we have to do all this work before then. Otherwise, I just don't do anything. So this exercises with the Nicholas Collins book is an attempt to like sort of try to introduce something regular into my schedule I need, you know, it's like, I need to make sure I'm taking my vitamins every day. I need to try to go to yoga more often. I, it's all these things I'm aware of what I need to do. And I'm trying bit by bit to do better, but it's so hard because my mind just wants to go to the one thing at the top of the list and do it with everything else like Mm -hmm. crumbling. I don't, it's not like, Oh, honey, I I put the Carrick above you, (laughs) but that's what he feels. And I totally understand that, but I don't know how else to do it. So it's like, I'm very, it's a very black and white thing on or off for me, any project on or off. So it's like, I guess don't do the project if I don't want the family unhappy. Hmm. So this is tricky, right? Because it sounds like you know what works for you, you know what motivates you, and that it, you know, the deadlines work for you. Total immersion works for you, but it also sounds like there's something about that that doesn't work for you right. because you're you're feeling that imbalance in your health and your relationships. Yeah. And so it's definitely, I think, an experimentation process of figuring out how to quite how to dial it in yeah. so you're getting closer to what balance is for, for you. For sure. Mm-hmm. And like after next week, after the Muse Masquerade, like I don't have any big projects on my horizon. Um, I'm not pursuing any shows particularly I because I haven't gotten around to looking at calls for artists, you know, it's on the bottom of my to-do list. I don't have any big projects coming, and so I'm hoping I can reset a little bit and try to get those things realigned, be doing things in moderation. 
still achieving things, but doing things in moderation. I'll be really excited to see how this works for you. So let me know what you end up doing because my challenge is that I jump from thing to thing. I'm sort of, um, I, I have a very hard time diving into something to the exclusion of everything else. So I have mm-hmm. sort of the opposite problem, mm-hmm. but I'm married to somebody who is a total focus person and will, he'll say like, I'm going upstairs to work on some project and then he will just disappear mm-hmm. for hours. Mm-hmm. I'm like, he's like, well, it took longer than I thought. And then I really got into that it. That sounds like me. And yeah. Yeah. He, he like really gets into it. He doesn't know that we're waiting for him. And it's really frustrating for me because I don't have that challenge. I, I can do a thing for a short amount of time. And then I'm like, oh, you know, I need to go do this other thing. And so that has its all a lot of other challenges related to it. But I know exactly what you're talking about and how how much it hurts him to be interrupted when he's in the zone. Right. I mean, he literally like it's it's almost like he's in another world and has to pull out of that mm-hmm. and it's painful totally. for him. Totally. So, totally. Yeah, so, I get it. Yeah. So I <laughs> so sure. I totally understand kind of where that is coming from. So I will be really curious to see what solutions you come up with mm-hmm. for yourself. And I know that part of what we've kind of negotiated is just having a conversation ahead of time. Say like, look, how much time do you need to feel like you've made some significant progress and you can have it. And and so I think he feels better knowing that he's got that time and we usually pad it a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Because in case like he goes down the rabbit hole, but just knowing that you have it and, you'll, and, and I don't interrupt him and the kids don't interrupt him and he has that, I think has helped. It's not, it's still not easy for him to pull out of it, but it's gotten easier for us um, in the household. This exactly mirrors our situation, mm-hmm. but you know, with, with you know, me being your husband and you being my husband, um, because he, he keeps asking me like, how long will it be? So I know. Right. And because <laughs> right. I'll, I'll get into something thinking it's 15 minutes and then I'll be down or whatever. And then I'll get sucked into something and be gone for two hours. And he's like, could you have just told me you're going to be gone for two hours? That would have been really helpful. Yes. And, and it's, I am, I admit I am terrible at estimating how much time it will take to do anything. And we've actually practiced that a little bit recently of me trying to be better about saying, can I have this much? Is it cool if I take this much time to do this? You know, just like agreeing in advance makes a difference. And I'm that that's something he's specifically asked me to do. And so I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm just because I'm terrible at estimating how long it takes to do anything. Um, and I know I should always like double the amount. It's still, for some reason, I'm just still bad at it. I don't know why. I bet you'll get there. Uh, Sounds like you have a lot of clues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our our marriage is is great other than this little thing (laughs) we're trying to work through. We've been married a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just the marriage. It's, you know, the, it's, it's how you want it how you want to feel fulfilled. Yeah. Right. As an yeah. artist, you want to get your hours in for that yep. and feel like you're coming away with something that is meaningful and time well spent and all of that. And so it's just as our lives change, as our interests change, it's just trying to figure out a way to do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, since I've had kids, that whole, my whole relationship to making has transformed in an extraordinary way. I can't even imagine. So, <laughs> I don't know how you do anything at all creatively. I barely do. But when I get a chance, boy, I'm there. So, um, so yeah, it's just I think about being flexible and in, in finding out new ways to, to do that given the demands of our lives. 
Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I think we've covered so much. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and having this This conversation. This was really fun. Super fun. I'm really excited to see what's next for you and for the Carrick and your work. And uh, yeah, hopefully by the time this airs, people will be able to actually look at my Instagram at Paris I'll be and see videos <laughs> of my experiments that I've been doing. Awesome. I will put all of that information in the show notes. Cool. Right. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. Please support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. For more information, go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. All of this information is in the show notes. Artist Soapbox music is composed by Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out.